because a triptase is negative does not mean you have not had anaphylaxis. We can have patients with quite profound episodes of hypotension or bronchospasm or a mixture that don't have an elevated triptase that we are absolutely completely convinced are an episode of anaphylaxis, but the triptase levels don't rise. What other myths and uncertainties might be out there in the world of anaesthetic anaphylaxis? Well, that's what I'm exploring in this episode of the Australian Anesthesia Podcast, where we talk about all things relevant to anaesthesia in Australia. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Dr. Susie New from the Australian Society of Anesthetists, otherwise known as the ASA. In this episode, I'm chatting with Dr. Richard Scalaro, who at the time we recorded this was the chair of the Australian New Zealand Anesthetic Allergy Group, or ANZAG. If you haven't heard about ANZAG, then please do visit their website. On their website, you can find the anaphylaxis management cards, as well as contact details for the approved anaesthetic allergy testing centres and referral forms and so on. Richard and I covered so much in our conversation that I have divided it up into three episodes. In this first episode, we discuss some of the ins and outs of testing patients who you suspect may have had anaphylaxis in relation to their anaesthetic. We talk about the incidence of anaphylaxis, the most common causative agents, the grades of anaphylaxis, and how to interpret the results from testing. There's a fair bit to cover, so let's get into it. Thanks for giving up some time this morning. So you are chair of ANZAG. Yes. Which for people who don't know, that's the Australian New Zealand Anesthetic Allergy Group. Yes. How did you develop an interest in allergy and anaphylaxis? It was quite serendipitous, really. I was at Nambour General Hospital, which is a hospital about 100 kilometres north of Brisbane. And at the time, we sent off all our allergy-related problems to Brisbane, to Buff Maycock. Buff Maycock's been one of the doyens of anaesthetic allergy in Australia for a very long time. And we owe much of what we do in Australia to Buff and other of our mentors. Is Buff still around? Is Buff still practising? Um, no, she's not. She's just stopped practising. She was a, an honorary member of the Princess Alexandra Hospital up until very recently, but has just relinquished that position. So she's okay. now properly fully retired. Oh, good honour. Yeah. Good honour. Anyway, so I thought, why are we sending all these people down to Brisbane? Surely we could do that here. It can't be that hard. So <laughs> Famous last words. <laughs> anyway, so I went down and Buff took me through some patients and then I started performing skin testing up on the Sunshine Coast and in consultation with Buff and continuing to ask Buff about what was happening, why I'm doing this, what's going on, et cetera, et cetera. And I was only doing a fairly small number of patients at that time. And that was about the time that the ANZAG started in Australia. And so I joined that organisation. I was then asked to join a working group to develop the testing guidelines. So what appropriate dilutions are and appropriate amount of drugs to inject and how you go about assessing a response. So ANZAG developed those guidelines and I was chair of that working group. Our initial chair was Michael Rose and then it was Paul McAleer. And when, as Paul McAleer was coming to the end of his time, a number of people were asked whether they wanted to take on the chair the next time around. 
Sharing is something I've never been particularly interested in. I've considered myself just a worker, but I was invited to take on that position and I accepted. And so for the last three and a bit years, I've been chair of ANZAG and that will be coming to the end in September of this year because you're only allowed two terms of two years and this will be my final. Oh, you've made a definite impact during your term. It's okay, been, that's very kind of you to say. It's great getting to know you in your role as chair. Thank you. I wanna, actually, I want to come back because I've used ANZAG or ANZAG. Have I been saying it wrong I don't know. Time? We all say it differently, <laughs> so I don't think, I don't <laughs> okay. think it matters. <laughs> I'm gonna, I say Falkadine. Do you say Falkadine? I say Falkadine. What Excellent. do other people say? I don't know, but I just thought, whilst there's different ways of yeah. pronouncing Anzag and Anzag, I should just double check. Yeah, I think most people call it Anzag and I call it Anzag because double R has always been an R to me, but it yep. doesn't matter. It makes it sound more Australian if you say Anzag. So. Yeah. <laughs> but I've always used the resources because I've had a query anaphylaxis in theatre and used the cards and so forth. I didn't realise that you also wrote the protocols for the dilution. Yes, So there's various protocols around the world, obviously. France has had some dilutions and then further developed by ENDA. Now you have, I can't remember exactly what ENDA stands (laughs) for just at this moment. But yes, we looked through the dilutions and tried to organise some that we felt were appropriate for the Australian population. Those have been under review now for the last year and about and we're planning on releasing a new set of guidelines for testing to go okay. back to do testing. Great. Yeah. Can I just dive into the testing side of things just for a little bit, if that's okay? Yeah, yeah. So can any anaesthetist pick up those guidelines and run testing or does there need to be some certification or extra training? So currently there is no certification, okay? I guess there's really no certification anywhere for skin testing in general. But we would strongly encourage, and and ZAG only would have testing centres on board that we know have been mentored by others involved in ANZAG because it's multiple shades of grey skin testing. And if mm-hmm. it's not something you've done before, so when it's obvious, it's obvious. This is in terms of the results. Yeah. So yep. you can do skin testing and you can get very obvious results, but it's important yep. to know how to do the dilutions, how to do the injections, making sure you're doing it in a uniform way. Mm. You don't want to get false positives. You don't want to get false negatives because of mm-hmm. technical problems. Mm-hmm. And then, like I said, when reading the results, it can often be shades of grey. When I first started, I thought it'd be straightforward. You just inject this stuff into patients and you get an answer every time, but it doesn't work like that. And when things are obvious and you can find the cause, that's great. Mm. When that's a neuromuscular blocker, we have the issues with regards to cross sensitivity. Mm. So it's not only saying you can't use, say, succimethonium, it's what agents are safe. And so it's important that you can provide documentation to tell patients and their treating physicians what drugs may be safe. Mm Mm-hmm. And when you don't find anything at all and the patient's had an anaphylactic reaction, it becomes quite difficult mm. to work out exactly what advice you should give in the future. So I don't think it's something that should be done just as a one-off yep. because there are significant technical issues associated with doing it. I'm so reassured that you say that, actually. I recently referred a patient for allergy testing 
Yes. And they came back to me and said, can you do the challenge in theatre with their next anaesthetic? <laughs> <laughs> so that we do that. Okay. <laughs> who does it though? People who are familiar with the testing. Yes. I guess it's been a practice in the past to ask anaesthetists to do the challenge. And when we do a challenge in that circumstance, we're trying to challenge to an agent we think is safe. We're not trying to induce anaphylaxis. We're trying to give you a safe agent. Good. The issue I've found with doing that in the past, though, has been that we did it once, only once, and the challenge seemed to go completely fine. And then about 20 minutes later, after the final part of the challenge had been concluded, the patient was given more drugs to reverse them into additional analgesia, and she had a very anaphylaxis-like picture at that time. Oh, was it the challenge that caused the anaphylaxis? Was it the other drugs that caused anaphylaxis? And as in an anaesthetic, there are so many components going on. Obviously, if it all goes well, you can say it's pretty safe, yeah. but it's easy to confound. Yeah. So I'm not doing that anymore. But and in general, we do it and we say, we think this is safe. This is a protocol, but it's a challenge. And it's something we would only ask people that we're confident in their abilities, that we know reasonably well, yeah. that we feel that we can comfortably mentor them through that process. But right. it's incredibly stressful. Oh. If it is picking up drugs that think they're going to cause anaphylaxis. Absolutely. It's scary. Exactly. And injecting it in a way that you're not familiar with, diluting yeah. it in a way that... And I'm so yes. reassured that you say that. And when people might be approached to do a challenge, it's not like you're running the full gamut of things that you would be testing for. It's just a very limited... So we would have performed skin testing and we would have said, this ah. part, we believe this drug is safe. We found what we think the culprit is or what the likely culprit is. We think this one's safe, but we can't be absolutely certain until it's actually given. Right. And we give a challenge that we give a small dose and increasing doses over periods of time. Okay. So right. a challenge would be giving a hundredth, a tenth, and then a full dose separated by half hour intervals. Now, people have always thought allergies and all or nothing thing that, you yeah. know, you only need a little bit and you can cause a reaction. That's not really true. Mm -hmm. So if you give small doses of like minuscule doses of the agent, not a tenth as a first thing, but a hundredth as a first dose. Mm. And if you do cause anaphylaxis, that's going to be much easier to treat right. than anaphylaxis where you give the full dose as a big push. Oh my goodness. I'm so glad I asked this question because I'm worried that anaesthetists out there will also be asked to provide a challenge and they yep. would not have any context for whether to say yes or no. No. And so I think that you made a really important point that it's done after skin testing has already yep. been done. It should be done after skin testing has already been done. <laughs> it wasn't the case. You shouldn't be asked to challenge something unless you're reasonably comfortable that the skin testing was negative for that agent. Okay. All right. So yep. skin testing, then challenge and progressive dilutions. There's a protocol. Yep. People are mentored through that process because yes. it's not our usual part of our anaesthetic. No. And we'd be doing it for a patient under anesthesia. So then you've got all the other confounders of, is this the anaesthetic? Is this the surgery? If a reaction happens to eventuate. Yes. We've got to subsequently investigate that person again if they have a reaction. We don't know if it was a challenged agent or something else because they got so many other drugs during their operation. Yeah. So it works well if there's a negative result, but okay. if there's any incident, it 
becomes difficult again. So oh. I've, I don't do that typically anymore. But that then involves us ANZAG members doing challenges. And if we mm-hmm. do challenges, we're then exposing patients to a drug, but not during an operation. And a drug they might not ever need in the future. They might not. I mean, there are a group of patients, obviously, that have had their operations cancelled. Mm. And we need to give them an anaesthetic and we need to do this. So that's very obvious that we need to perform those challenges. But on occasions, mm. we challenge patients that may never have an operation again. So, okay. yeah. And again, that challenge, if you're doing it, one of the ANZAG members is doing it. Again, it's done after the skin testing. Yes. And then they come in and it's a different protocol to do the challenge. Yeah. So when we do skin testing, we don't fast patients. Mm -hmm. When we challenge patients in an anaesthetic environment, so this is anaesthetists doing it, not immunologists, because they Mm -hmm. have a very different way of doing things, we would challenge them in a theatre-like environment. Mm, So that you could resuscitate them if required. Yes. So most of the members do it in an anaesthetic recovery area, PACU sort of area, with anaesthetic machines available. Never Mm -hmm. had to use one at this stage. Cross fingers, touch wood. And I would expect never to do because, again, our model of challenging is to drugs that we believe are safe. Yep, gotcha. I'm glad you mentioned the immunologist testing because I've had some discussions and it seems that anaesthetic allergy testing is different to immunologist testing. Do you know much about the way that they test and what some of the differences are? I don't know a lot about the way they test. I feel uncomfortable really discussing that at length because it may not be completely true about Mm -hmm. the way they do things. And I haven't really been involved in a lot of their challenges. Mm-hmm. Most of their challenges obviously are an oral challenge. They don't typically give IV drugs as challenges. And so an oral challenge inherently is a little bit more safe in some ways, mm-hmm. but also they're a little bit less safe in the fact that once you've given something orally, it's there for a long time and mm-hmm. continues to be an allergen in that patient for a long time. Again, anecdotally, the patients don't necessarily stay under direct observation for all of that time. Mm-hmm. whereas anaesthetists would typically have that patient under direct observation, one-on-one observation for that whole period of time. But mm. again, like I said, I have very limited experience with the way immunologists, and this would be for food allergens. and mm. Bee stings and peanuts and things like that. Yeah. So yep. drug and sting allergies, they are a bit different from food and aeroallergens in the fact that they pre- tend to produce more serious reactions more quickly. Mm. So I guess we're injecting a drug rather than through the gastrointestinal respiratory tract. Yeah, more direct, isn't it? More bioavailability. Yeah. All right. You are such a wealth of knowledge on anaphylaxis. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad we're having this conversation. Just to put it in context, how common is anaesthetic-related anaphylaxis? So a general number is about 1 in 10,000. That's been widely quoted for a long period of time that about 1 in 10,000 anaesthetics will have anaphylaxis. Now, anaphylaxis has obviously got different definitions. NAP6 required patients to have marked hypotension, but we include in our investigation anaphylaxis would include just respiratory tract component. We see patients with profound bronchospasm, which are almost impossible to ventilate, but Mm -hmm. have limited cardiovascular or, or mucocutaneous signs Mm -hmm. and we also investigate patients who've got mucocutaneous signs and hypotension that's not life-threatening and we investigate those patients as well because Mm -hmm. given that you might need to give those drugs again how comfortably are you giving those drugs one in ten thousand is about the number given but there's variations around that obviously i see and when we're talking about the grades of anaphylaxis we're really prepared to investigate 
grade two, three, and four? Yeah, so grade two is any change away from the normal hemodynamics or respiratory numbers you'd expect. Mm -hmm. Grade three is referred to as life-threatening anaphylaxis. And then again, that's variable as well. Profound hypotension or hypoxia are the two things that we talk about. And grade four is obviously cardiac arrest. Mm -hmm. We'll often get involved in assessing patients who've just had mucocutaneous signs as well. Okay, so just grade one, yeah. Yeah, because patients are given how many drugs during an anaesthetic? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) 10 to 20. (laughs) I know. And which one of those was the one that caused it? And in reality, though, if patients just develop urticarial rash associated with an episode of anaphylaxis, it's quite difficult to find the Mm. causative agent. As you know, we do triptases routinely. Yes. And triptases help us a lot because if we obviously get cutaneous signs plus a triptase rise, we're probably more likely to find a cause under those circumstances. But we often don't. If patients just have mucocutaneous signs, we often don't find a cause. And coming back to what you were saying with the NAP6 definition, they're really looking at grade 3, grade 4. Yes, so grade 3 and grade 4 only. Yeah, which is why the numbers are so different, I see. In terms of the Australian context, do we know which ones are the most common causative agents? Okay, so neuromuscular blocking agents are the most common cause overall, causing about 40% of all test-positive anaphylaxis cases and about 30% are due to kefazolin and then the other agents involve chlorhexidine, Patent Blue, and Sigamidex. And they cover about 85% of all positive test results that we get. Right. So when we test patients, although we think we've had an episode of anaphylaxis, we don't always get an answer. We got about 50% to 60% positive results in that group of patients that we tested under those circumstances. Now, this is a very rough estimate because we're not sure about which grades of anaphylaxis we were testing for in that group. So obviously, like I said, grade one anaphylaxis, we're very unlikely to find something grade two, more likely grade threes where we find most of them. It depends what grade of anaphylaxis we're testing as to whether we're likely to find a result. Oh, interesting. Okay. Because I refer a lot of grade one and two. Yes. So don't be surprised if I'm not always getting an answer back. Don't be surprised. (laughs) Is it still worth sending them for testing? Yes, definitely, because we'd like to give you an answer and sometimes we can give you an answer. So 50% of the time we should be able to give you an answer at least. (laughs) Yep. And then on those occasions where we don't give you an answer, we can give you some advice as to what way we think you should proceed in the future. Great. And any advice from a trusted expert is welcome. So amongst those neuromuscular blocking agents, rocuronin would be the most common, Mm -hmm. causing 26% of all our test positives and 14% is a combination of the other agents. So that being SUCS, VEC and Cisatricurium. I guess something I need to raise is with regards to morphine. So when we send out a report on allergy testing, we will have a positive control of morphine. We inject morphine under the skin at a dilution of 10 micrograms per mil to give us a positive result. Oh, really? Yep. That is our positive control. 10 microgram mil under their skin and you get a nice wheel with flare associated with that in most patients. Interesting. Yeah. And if we don't get a flare or a wheel to that, we believe that the testing is more likely to produce false negatives. 
because the histamine mechanism, which morphine directly stimulates, yes. is not necessarily being stimulated in the skin. So the immune response we set up with our skin testing is less likely to produce a response. Interesting. So when you see a report that says positive control morphine, it doesn't mean that the patient's allergic to morphine. Yes, good point. <laughs> yes, and it's a question we get asked a bit. Mm. And also we test for specific IgE to particular agents. Now, falcadine is obviously one of those. Okay. We test for chlorhexidine, we test for latex, we test for succimethonium, and we test for morphine. And when we test for morphine and we get a positive result to the SIgE for morphine, that mm -hmm. doesn't mean that you're allergic to morphine. It is just okay. being solely used as an indication of possible antibodies directed to the quaternary ammonium iron, which is found on the neuromuscular blocking agents. Uh, Although they've got an SIgE to morphine, that's not an allergy to morphine. And only if we say on the sheet that they're also allergic to morphine, specifically yes. morphine, would be the only time that would mean you're allergic to morphine. And true allergy to morphine is incredibly low. Okay. That's really yep. good. Yeah, we need help interpreting those allergy test results, so that's great. And asking this question as a five-year-old, the SIGE test is a blood test. Yes. So, yeah, it's a blood test that we do and we're looking for the presence of antibodies directed to number of agents. And the people who don't create that positive control to morphine, that yes. wheel, is there any gender, ethnicity or any differences not that I'm aware of, Susie, but I haven't looked at that, so I couldn't give you an answer about that. The only thing we do with patients before coming for skin testing, we say they're not to take any of their antihistamines for a period of time before their skin testing because that does upset it. Mm -hmm. But in, with regards to the question you asked, no, I'm not sure of anything that makes any difference to that. Okay. Have I gone through everything? Are there any common myths that I am missing? What do you get asked about often? The other thing is, because a triptase is negative does not mean you have not had anaphylaxis. Okay. okay. That's reassuring. We can have patients with quite profound episodes of hypotension or bronchospasm or a mixture that don't have an elevated triptase, that we are absolutely completely convinced they're an episode of anaphylaxis, but the triptase levels don't rise. So whilst... Triptase is helpful when it's positive and shows a, a dynamic rise. Having a negative result doesn't exclude anaphylaxis. Gotcha. The other issue is we often get sent triptase results which never rise above what is expected as the normal. So mm -hmm. the normal range is less than 13.5 micrograms per litre at some laboratories, less than 11.5 at other laboratories. But we can have patients whose triptase rises, say, to nine during event of anaphylaxis when their baseline is one. I see. And that's a significant change. In that group of patients, we would say that they've actually had a dynamic triptase rise, even though their levels didn't rise higher than the normal. So yes. it's important yes. you get the triptase levels at the time of the reaction Mm. and also those baseline levels some 24 hours later. And if someone isn't able to, you know, if you have an event in hospital, patients going home, you can't do the 24-hour triptase, we can certainly do that or allergy services can do that subsequently. It's really great if the patient can have that four-hour triptase while they're in hospital 
because occasionally we don't see a triptase rise until around that four-hour mark. You can have a relatively normal triptase depending on way it's been timed etc and then at the four hour mark that the triptase has risen that doesn't happen all that often yes but it's we would really like people to do that four hour triptase if it is at all possible that's a good tip and that reminds me because since i set my part to exam the timings have changed and i only know this because i had to do this unfortunately on a patient recently that the triptase times are at the time one hour four hours and 24 hours now Yes, so we included it at the time number because our mark might get extended out to an hour and a half and sometimes you've missed the very peak of that reaction and so hopefully getting more tests in that initial period will make it more likely that you're going to pick up the raised triptase. Wow, fantastic. Look, it's been so educational, informative chatting with you this morning. Thank you, Susie. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Richard and also learned something that might change your practice. Some takeaways from my end are that anaphylaxis rates and likely causative agents differ around the world. Also, that your patient may not always get a definitive answer with testing. They're more likely to get a result on skin prick testing with higher grades of anaphylaxis. But still refer patients with suspected grade one anaphylaxis. So that's just the cutaneous signs. As you may get a result, 50% of the time. One big thing to point out was that unless you've been trained, don't be conned into doing a challenge for a patient under anesthesia, as almost happened to me. As I mentioned at the start, this is part one of this series. In the next part, Richard and I are discussing anaphylaxis to antibiotics, particularly the cross-reactivity between penicillins and cephalosporins. Don't forget that you can claim the time listening to this podcast, and in fact any of the podcasts, for your CPD. And also, don't forget to check out the Anzag website if you haven't already. Some of you might have listened to a deeply personal podcast I recorded with Dr. Ben McKenzie, who sadly lost his son to anaphylaxis. It's episode 78, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Ben has kindly agreed to present to us via an online webinar, which will be held in March. ASA members, you'll find out about this via email and be able to register for it on the ASA website. I'm looking forward to sharing the next part of this conversation with you. Until then, I hope you are staying safe and well out there. Welcome to 2024 and thanks for listening.